0: Have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the privilege we have of knowing Christ, and thank you for the hope that that gives us an eternal hope. Uh, We know our destiny is settled, and therefore we can have confidence and rely upon you and trust you. Pray this word that we study tonight from the book of Acts will increase our knowledge and understanding of how you have worked through the ages and times. And they might encourage us in our own spiritual walk with you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're looking at the Jerusalem Council. Remember Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. We saw that in chapter 15, certain people came to Antioch and from Jerusalem, and they were telling the Gentiles up in Antioch, you must be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. So some delegates from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, uh, along with some other believers in verse 2, were appointed to go to Jerusalem, which they did. <clears throat> and they tried to reach a consensus on this situation. And they, uh, Paul and Barnabas speak, Peter speaks, and then James gets up. And he says, verse 19, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it more difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And I was talking about this at the bottom of page 11 and so forth. Uh, these four items listed by James food, James, food polluted by idols, sexual morality, meat. Uh, so, as I said, this has sometimes been interpreted as as prohibiting Gentiles from eating marketplace food. Um, so if you went to a city like um, Antioch or any other Gentile city, and you wanted to buy meat, you would buy it in the marketplace. And more often than not, this meat had first been offered in a pagan temple in that city. That was standard practice. Uh, Jews slaughtered their own meat and, and, and took care of that, what they call kosher, properly treated meat. As I say here, Jewish law prohibited Jews from eating this meat sold in the marketplace. And it looks like maybe James is prohibiting that. But I said I I think that's the wrong interpretation of what James is saying here. The reason I say that is because it disagrees with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul is dealing with a problem at Corinth, and that is at Corinth people had been accustomed all of their lives to going to these pagan temples. There were numerous temples in Corinth. Many temples had been excavated there and found. And uh, people went to these temples just like we might go to the bowling alley. That is, or we went to a restaurant. There weren't any, there weren't any McDonald's back there. There weren't any Chili's. There were temples and there were restaurants and temples in a sense. In other words, you would go to the temple for some sort of ceremony, for some sort of whatever it would be, and as part of that dinner, that celebration, if you wanted to have a birthday party for your child, you would have it at the local temple. But as part of that birthday celebration, you would sacrifice something to the gods. That would just be part of the birthday. It's just the civic duty to do this, the local god or goddess, whoever it was. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, nine, ten 10 prohibits going to those temples. Now that you're a Christian, even though you've been going to those temples all your life for birthday parties, all kinds of civic celebrations, you can't go to the temple any longer, he says. You just can't go because it's idolatry. You know, you say I'm just going to celebrate the birthday of the child, but the problem is they are worshiping the pagan deity. They're worshiping an idol while you you know you as part of that. You can't you can't separate the two. So Paul in First Corinthians chapters eight and 10, prohibits that. But Paul does allow people to buy food in the marketplace. And as I say on the top of page twelve, eat anything sold. In meat, first so uh, Corinthians 10:25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. So Paul said, you can go down to the meat market. Unlike the Jews who couldn't, and you can buy some meat there. Now it's been dedicated in some pagan temple, but that doesn't make any difference. It doesn't hurt the meat, it doesn't affect the meat, and you're not gauging in idolatry by eating that meat. It doesn't affect the meat or anything like that. What Paul prohibited was going to the pagan temple. And what I'm arguing here in this next paragraph is that's what James is talking about. Notice what I say here. I kind of have a chart here to show you what I'm talking about. Another interpretation seems more likely. Top of page 12. We should first note that the word translated food polluted by idols in 1520 and food sacrificed to idols in 1529 is also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. Uh... Do not refer to a sacrifice which has come from the temple and is eaten elsewhere, but instead refer to an animal sacrifice in the presence of an idol and eaten in the temple precincts. Remember I said that's what Paul prohibits, going to the temple, eating meat there or food there. In Acts 15, 20, Luke speaks of abstaining from food polluted by idols, which clearly refers to the pollutions resulting from contact with idol worship. The place where one would find all four of these things listed by James being partaken of in one place, food polluted by idols, sexual morality, meat of strangled animals, and blood is an act of pagan worship. There is evidence that the choking of the sacrifice, strangling it, and drinking or tasting of its blood also took place in pagan temples. We know sexual morality occurred there. This going to the feast in pagan temples is what Paul prohibits in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. He prohibits it because he says in chapter 10, it's idolatry. Flee from idolatry. That's the reason. There's nothing wrong with the meat. It's just meat. It's the idolatry. Thus, according to this interpretation, which I'm suggesting here... Paul and James are in full agreement over what the Gentiles need to do to maintain table fellowship with Jewish Christians. Avoid pagan feast and immorality. It is idolatry that Moses and the law most object to about pagans as the first two of the Ten Commandments made clear. James does not want to give the Jews in the diaspora synagogues the opportunity to complain that Gentile Christians are still committing idolatry in pagan temples in violation of the law of Moses. So, I think we can harmonize these two by saying what James is laying down here is he's he's laying down Gentiles don't have to keep the law and, and, and be circumcised, but you can't commit uh, idolatry and that's the big problem for the it, this is a huge problem when you study the, the ancient world here and you, and you study this going to these <clears throat> temples this was just an everyday occurrence for these people so t- to not be able to do that anymore is a huge huge problem and the Corinthians are complaining about it to Paul that's, that's the problem that Paul has to talk about quite a bit because and in 2nd Corinthians he has to deal with it it's a huge problem for these people So, uh, in verses 22 through 29, we see the decision and letter of the council. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some from their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, also called Barsavis, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your mind by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and friends and, and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, meat of strangled animals, from sexual morality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. As I say here, the recommendation of James was accepted by a whole council. The decision was sent back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and two leaders of the Jerusalem congregation, Judas and Silas. Longnecker says in his commentary, I think wise, says, the effects of the decision were far-reaching. In the first place, it freed the gospel from any necessary entanglement with Judaism, whether expressed as Jewish rites or Jewish customs. Nevertheless, it did not renounce legitimacy of a continued Jewish expression for Jewish believers in Jesus. Thus, both Paul's mission to the Gentiles and Jewish-Christian mission to Jews were enabled to progress side by side without conflict. Second, attitudes toward Paul within the Jewish Christianity were clarified. While some of the Jews, Jewish believers, probably became more opposed to Paul, others seemed to have become more accepting of his position. Now, that might be what's happening later on in verses 37 through 39. Remember when Barnabas wants to take Mark along and Mark, uh, Paul doesn't want to take him. One theory about that, and that's what Longnecker is expressing here, is that Mark didn't buy into this idea about Gentiles not having to have some relationship to the law or circumcision. This is just a theory about why, why is Paul so upset and not willing to take Mark? Well, he defected, but why did he defect? Why did he leave them at Perga and Pamphylia and go back? What was, he, what was the problem? And anyway, uh, he says, also as a result of the council, some felt happier in a Gentile ministry than in Jerusalem. Silas, for instance, joins Paul on his second missionary journey. Third, the decision of the council had the effect of permanently antagonizing many Jews. From this time onward, the Jewish mission within the nation, particularly in and around in Jerusalem itself, faced very rough sledding. Remember, Paul says himself, and later on in the book of Romans, as far as the gospel is concerned, these Jews, Jews are enemies for your sake but as far as election is concerned they are loved on account of the patriarch so there is still Jewish opposition to the Gentile mission This Paul's going to face that all the time there's still this Jewish opposition people who don't buy the fact that Gentiles can be reached directly apart from Jewish institutions and we understand why they might say that. Because, okay, how can there be two ways of salvation? There can't be. <laughs> if you can be saved, if you and I can be saved, simply by believing on Christ and so forth, we don't have to keep the Mosaic Law. Then why does anybody have to keep that? You know, why are these Jews happy to do it? Well, they keep on doing it. So we have this parallel thing going on here for a number of years until the temple is finally demolished. So... Uh, verse 30 through 35 we see the reception decision of the council and the reception of the letter Um, so the men were sent off and went down to Antioch so they go back from Jerusalem to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message Judas and Silas who themselves were prophets said much these are New Testament prophets Uh, with this miraculous gift of being able to speak the truth from God by revelation said much to encourage and strengthen the believers after spending some time there they were sent off by the believers with the blessings of peace to return to those who had sent them but Paul and Barnabas were reigned in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord so um As I say here, Judas and Silas return to Jerusalem after spending some time. Now, later in verse 36, it says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go and visit the believers, and they are accompanied by Silas on that particular visit, but this is sometime later, Uh, so apparently Silas goes back, uh, they go back to to Jerusalem, and uh, Paul and and Barnabas remained there in Antioch for some time and then sometime later. And that sometimes later is the second missionary journey. The start of the journey is 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 not the, the best in the sense of there's a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas about who should go on this particular journey. The disagreement and the forming of basically two missionary teams. So I say here in verse 36, the victory for Gentile evangelization at the Jerusalem Council would be a great impetus for further evangelization. Paul knew that the Judaizers were still causing problems in the Galatian churches. Remember those churches in the province of Galatia, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, Lystra. Paul had written that epistle to the Galatians back to them already. He knows they're still causing trouble. He wants to go back there. And so... uh, And he wants to tell them about the decision of the Jerusalem Council. They need to hear that, you know. This letter was taken back to Antioch. But what about those churches in Galatia on the first missionary journey? Well, that's what happens in verse 36 of chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. So there it sounds like a simple case. Well, it sounds like it's a case of desertion, but I guess, again, I keep saying why? why? What exactly was, and it could be anything. We don't know. We're just speculating here. Maybe just fearful, too hard, too harsh. Or was there a disagreement with Paul? Some speculate that that, that it's always possible, but anyway, um, Paul didn't want to take him because he had deserted them at Perga. Um, now, of course, Mark is is uh, Barnabas's cousin. Remember, Mark is uh, Barnabas's cousin according to Colossians four ten, and. Uh, So, he has this natural affinity, I assume, for his cousin here. He's a member of the family. Well, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Now, as I say here, Luke doesn't say if somebody's to blame or not to blame. People have speculated about this for years. You know, is Barnabas to blame here? Couldn't he see that Paul's right about this? And... I don't know. We we know it's, it's, it's text doesn't doesn't tell us if anybody was right or wrong. It was a disagreement, a sharp disagreement. It was a strong disagreement. They couldn't they couldn't settle this. Barnabas was determined to take Mark, so he does. He takes Mark and uh, takes him to Cyprus. They would need to hear about the Jerusalem Council decision too. So in some ways, it's not too bad. In the sense that, remember, on their first missionary journey, they first went to Cyprus. They remember they went to uh, uh, to the island where Barnabas was from, and Sergius Paulus was converted there in Paphos. So there were churches there that need to hear, and maybe that was a less hostile territory to go to. You know, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe if, if. Uh, you could speculate if the reason was that Mark just wasn't up for the hardship. Maybe this would be easier to take him to Cyprus, back to Barnabas's home country, and so maybe that's part of it. But whatever the reason, the reason for the desertion is just not given to us. He decides to take his cousin, and they sail for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas. This was the previously mentioned man from Jerusalem who uh, had come to Antioch to come with the letter because I mean when Paul when the Jerusalem council sent that letter up there with Paul and Barnabas they wanted to send somebody along from the Jerusalem church who could say yes this letter is true it's not a forgery this is what we really settled we're from we're from Jerusalem and we ver- we will verify and substantiate the truth of what this letter says it's a genuine letter so so uh, Paul decides to take Silas. Obviously, he had gotten to know Silas, appreciate things about Silas. As I say here, Silas was an excellent choice. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church, according to 1522, and was explicitly identified in the Jerusalem letter as one who could speak with authority on the attitude of the Jerusalem church. So this was a very helpful thing. You know, when they go back to Galatia, and there are these people who claim to be from Jerusalem, saying, here's what Jerusalem says. Paul's all wrong. This Paul guy's crazy, man. Listen to us. We're from Jerusalem. No, Silas could say, I'm from Jerusalem, and I'm telling you what Paul says is right here. You know, and this letter's right. Here's the truth, and so forth. So he's an excellent choice. He's from Jerusalem. He's also a Roman citizen, and we know that later in 1637, because at Philippi, he's cast into prison with Paul, And the text says, you know, you have put us into prison, and we, Paul and Silas, are Roman citizens. So that's a very unusual thing. So that's that's a very helpful thing if you're going to go on a mission into the Roman world to be a Roman citizen. It gets you all kinds. It helps them in Philippi particularly. So he's a Roman citizen, so he could use those privileges to further the gospel when needed. He's a prophet. We saw in fifteen thirty-two appears to be fluent in Greek because it says uh, in 1532 that in Antioch he did much to encourage and strengthen the believers. So he was obviously fluent in Greek uh, because he comes to Antioch and is able to speak and so forth and teach. So he had a lot of really positive characteristics that we see. and So it seems natural why Paul would choose a man like Silas to go with him. And so it says that's exactly what happened. Um the slide to say that that's where they went. Um, it looks like that even though they had this disagreement, as I say here, they did apparently Barnabas and apparently Barnabas and Paul were reconciled, apparently. Certainly Mark and Paul were reconciled. In First Corinthians 9, 6, Paul is arguing there about his right to be supported by the churches that he is ministering to, but he gave up that right. He's talking about giving up certain rights, and he says, Or is it only I and Barnabas who'd like the right not to work for a living? Now, it doesn't say I'm, I'm with Barnabas, but it does. He, he does use Barnabas in a positive fashion there to speak about Barnabas and I both travel around and so forth, he didn't seem to be totally separate from Barnabas Colossians 4.10 my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings as does Mark the cousin of Marcus, uh, Barnabas you're receiving instruction now this is really later on this is when Paul is in his first imprisonment After this is this is Acts 28 this is Acts 28 Paul is writing this from Jerusalem and he says uh, my brother fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greetings, as does Mark. Uh, Remember Philemon 24, Paul writes this at the same time he does Colossians 4.10, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, sending greetings. So Mark is there with Paul. So somehow he got reunited with Paul. Whatever whatever Paul's problems with Mark were before, uh, I assume they were legitimate problems he had with Mark, this seems to be patched up. Second Timothy, remember, is Paul's uh, last letter. This is his second imprisonment. We'll come to that, 2 Timothy. This is at the end of his life before he is, according to tradition, um, he is executed. He has his uh, head cut off at Rome. But he says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me for my, in my ministry. So... So obviously, whatever objections Paul had to mark originally, um, you know Mark proved himself apparently later on. So so that breach was not a complete and final and total breach in that sense. So they leave and they uh, Paul chose Barnabas left. He went through Syria and Cilicia. Strengthening the churches. So he goes up through here, through Syria and Cilicia. And notice it says, strengthening the churches. I've alluded to this before because we don't have any record of any churches being established there. There is nothing in Acts about any church ever being established there at all. Remember? Because Paul is saved. Remember in Acts chapter 9. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem and then he comes back to this area. We pick him up in the Book of Acts when he comes when Barnabas brings him back to Antioch. They go on their first missionary journey, and they just come right here to Derby, and then they come back. But remember, Paul was in this area for eight or nine, ten years. Remember, and that's when I suggested apparently Paul established some churches. Somebody did, because it says here. They went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So even though Acts doesn't talk about the founding of churches here, now they're close to Antioch, so you, you know they could have had people come over from there. But you know Paul was there for a number of years after his conversion during that silent period we talked about between uh, his when, he's, when he goes off to Syria and Cilicia back to Tarsus, and Barnabas comes and gets him. So. It's interesting that there are churches there. So Luke doesn't tell us everything. Remember, Luke is interested in getting us from Jerusalem to Rome. How did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? So he doesn't tell us about everybody who established a church and everything that went on. He doesn't talk about Galilee. Remember, I said, Jesus spent an enormous time in Galilee. And Luke tells us nothing about the Galilean churches, you know, because it's not important for his his story about Jerusalem to Rome. He wants to tell us and concentrate on the Apostle Paul here. So as I say, they were presumably established through the efforts of Paul. We don't know if that's the truth or not, but that seems most likely. Well, we come to page 14, and we see that Paul adds Timothy to his team in Galatia. So we have Paul and Silas now, right? Paul and Silas are the first two members of the missionary team. They have come up uh, here into Syria and Cilicia, and this time they're going to travel right back through this area and come right into the uh, eastern part of Galatia. Remember the last time... They came up to Antioch and Pisidia and traveled uh, east. Here they're, they're, here they're going east and traveling west. So Timothy is added. It. it says, Paul came to Derby. So here's Derby here, remember? And then it says, Paul comes to Lystra, um, where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. So he comes over to Lystra and finds Timothy there. Um, As I say here, Timothy was apparently a previous convert of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul calls him my son which sounds like he was converted under Paul's ministry, my son, and so forth. Apparently saved on the first missionary journey. Remember, on the first missionary journey, that's when Paul goes to Derby. Now, it doesn't say Timothy was saved there, but remember, the first missionary journey, that's the last place they went. They went to Derby, established a church there. And so it's very possible that Timothy is... Um, is saved on that first missionary journey because uh, here he has a reputation, apparently a good reputation, and so forth. And uh, apparently that's the case. Remember, his uh, mother is named Eunice, and uh, he's Paul says in Second Timothy, "I'm reminded of your sincere faith, writing to Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois." and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded, now lives in you also. So here is, here's a, a lad who had been taught by his grandmother and by his mother. And so apparently from a young age, according to what Paul says in 2 Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy was apparently raised as a youth by these Jewish women and so forth, even though his father was a Greek. Um, And Paul says he wanted to take him along with him on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Um, This has has been appealed to many times as an inconsistency in Paul. Um, That even the great apostle didn't always do the right thing. And sometimes it's been appealed to uh, about by people who wanted to justify their their actions. I remember when uh, uh, I went to my doctoral work, I went to Grace Theological Seminary, and uh, one of the previous presidents there of Grace Seminary was a man by the name of Herman Hoyt. And uh, he, uh, you know, I'm not sure when this would have been, Sixties, seventies, seventies. I guess uh, he was invited to go to a large conference, and he went to this conference, and he was criticized because there were a lot of people there who were more liberal persuasion, who didn't hold to the truth of Scripture, and he was criticized for that. And when he came back, he was criticized, and he quote, <laughs> he said, "Well, Paul had Timothy circumcised. You know, Paul was inconsistent. You know, he had because remember we've seen Paul is fighting for the fact." that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Why would he have Timothy circumcised? And we didn't look at the book of Galatians, but remember in the book of Galatians, in chapter 2 there it says that when these Jews came up to uh, Antioch and wanted Titus to be circumcised, I said, absolutely not. We are not circumcising Titus. Well, Titus was a Gentile, fully a Gentile. And Paul was saying, if we circumcise him, that means Gentiles have to be circumcised. So I I stood against that circumcision. But here, it seems to cave. You know, that's, that's what we say. So this would appear to be an inconsistency on Paul's part in light of the recent decision at Jerusalem and his letter to the Galatians. However, so I'm going to... To make a case here that this is not an inconsistency. We must remember that although Paul rejected the view that Gentile converts must be circumcised and keep the Jewish law, he did not see it as a problem for Jews as long as these cultural practices were not viewed as necessary to salvation. Paul himself seems to have generally to have who to have, seems to have generally been an observant Jew. Paul, believes, Paul believed, believed that a person who came to Christ did not have to give up the cultural forms they had inherited as long as these did not conflict with Christian doctrine. So we've got a tricky little thing here to try to uh, figure out here. <coughs> Apparently Paul believed that some of the Jewish practices were, were largely cultural. They identified this person as to their culture. And as long as they didn't conflict with the doctrine of salvation or Christians' doctrine about salvation, that they could continue to do some of these cultural practices. We face the same problem. Missionaries face the same problem when they go to a new place and establishing a church. There may be certain practices that are done there, you know, uh, that are not really... Contrary to Scripture, they're just not like we do in the United States, you know. They're they're a little different, and maybe we don't think they're necessarily the best. Sometimes, you know, um, should we? Sometimes missionaries have gone to places and tried to get people to, to become Americans to conform conform to American, uh, you know, kind of thing. I mean, under one of our students, Rob Howell, uh Rob he was in Africa a long time, but if you go over there to see when you if you saw Rob when he was there. The music is quite a bit different. <laughs> you know, it sounds like African music, you know. But it's tough for a missionary. How much do you change of that? This is just their cultural music. It's not that it's sinful, it's just part of their the way they worship, where they you know, that kind of thing. So these things are, are, are difficult to navigate sometimes. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Let me turn over there and, and look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's an interesting passage because Paul is dealing here, he's actually dealing with the question of marriage. And, uh, you know, he's bringing up the question if you get married, if you get saved, and your partner is unsaved. What do you do? Do you get a divorce? Paul says, no, you don't do that. You don't change that situation. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to him, just as the Lord has called them. So he says, generally speaking, when you get saved, you can remain in the situation you were. If you're a plumber, you can be a plumber. If you're a school teacher, you can be a school teacher. You no, know? he doesn't deal with it here, but we know he doesn't mean if you're engaged in a sinful profession, you can continue. He doesn't deal with that, but we assume. He doesn't mean if you run a pornographic magazine, you got to quit that. You know what I mean? So we assume that. But he says, generally, you can remain in the situation you are. He says, this is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called to salvation, he should not be circumcised. Because circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, keeping God's commandments is what counts. This is this is that's a very interesting verse in its own right there when you think about that. Can you imagine saying that to Moses? Moses, let me tell you something, Moses, or Abraham, or just say Moses. Moses, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. What would Moses think about that? He'd say, you must be crazy. That is God's commandment, isn't it? Circumcision. Well, this is why we're dispensationalists. There's been a change, hasn't there? A dispensational change. We're no longer under that Mosaic law anymore. That was for Israel. Circumcision was part of the Abrahamic covenant. We're not under that. So Paul says circumcision is really nothing. So if a person was circumcised, that's fine. If they're not, it's fine. It's not a big deal. So Paul is not going to prohibit Jewish Christians from circumcising their children. That's the point. He's not going to prohibit them as long as they don't think that that's necessary for salvation. Now he doesn't say that. I'm, I'm kind of reading I, I kind of that's what I would kind of read here. Each person should remain in the situation they were when they were called. God called them to salvation. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Now, this is not an absolute principle, as we'll see right here. Were you a slave? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So generally, remain in the situation you were, but that's not absolute. If you're a slave, you know, and you can gain your freedom, that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, For the one who was a slave and so forth. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves. So so remain in the situation you are. So I think uh, what we have here in this case is that Paul believed that a person could continue... The cultural situation they were in, as long as it didn't, um, it, it wasn't in conflict with the truth, true doctrines of Scripture about salvation, and so forth. I say here on bottom page fourteen after that reference, Jewish lineage is passed down through the mother. So Timothy, because of his Jewish mother would be seen as a Jew in the eyes of the Jewish world. So why would Timothy Paul have Timothy circumcised? I think we can justify this. I would justify it and say Paul did it basically because he wanted him to be acceptable to Jewish Christians in order to evangelize them. In other words, here we have a, a young man who's in no man's land. His father is apparently dead. The, the way the Greek text reads here is, it's it, it, it says his father was a Greek. That The way the past tense reads there, it sounds like his father is actually dead now. He's being raised by his mother and his grandmother. But maternally, through his mother's line, he is a Jew, but for some reason he hasn't been circumcised. Maybe his father prohibited that when he was alive. He wouldn't allow that. So here you have, is this fellow a Jew? Is this fellow... A Gentile, well, he's really a Jew through the maternal line. So in order, I think, for Paul to have Timothy work with him on this mission to be acceptable in the synagogue, he's not placating Judaizing Christians. He's not circumcising him so he can be saved. I think he did this for effectiveness of service is what I would argue, many would argue here, that this was simply done in a way to make him more effective. Remember, Paul himself says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So Paul says, when I'm with Jewish people, I don't eat my ham sandwiches. I love my ham sandwiches, Paul says. That's in the Greek, you can't get that. (laughs) I love my ham sandwiches, but I don't eat my ham sandwiches with my Jewish believers, friends, right? To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. I'm a Christian. Christians are not under the law, even though I'm a Jewish Christian, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. When I'm with my Gentile friends, I eat my ham sandwiches. So the point is, um, Paul could adapt, not the message, not the truth, but his own personal practices and so forth, his living arrangements, his own social situation when he's presenting the gospel to these people. So I'm arguing here that um, Paul may have done this, not because he... Uh, Was wrong here in the sense not because he made he miscalculated he made a misstep because he sinned he was simply trying to make Timothy maybe more effective for service here. So Paul, yes,
1: I just I I don't want to get off on a tangent, but but uh, you know in this matter Acts twenty one seems to really be a problem text because I mean there it does really seem that Paul was. Uh, compromising with the Jews in Jerusalem because, and they strongly emphasize so that everybody here in Jerusalem will know that you obey the law and that, that this stuff about you not doing it with the Gentiles that, that's nothing uh, and I mean and, and then Paul did it Paul got his head shaved and went along yeah. with the poor guys and you know and then there was the riot, and that kind of became a central story. Now, I don't want to get off on now. Maybe you want to deal that. We will. We'll
0: get to it when we get to Acts 21. We'll get to it. Get to it. But you're, you're right. That's much more difficult to, to handle. But I'll do it. <laughs> you might not like the answer, but we'll, we'll get to it in Acts 21. So uh, they add Timothy. Um, it says in verse 4, Uh, As they traveled from town to town, this is in Galatia, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Well, then we see divine direction for the mission. Acts 16, 6-10. This is really the start of new territory now. We are on the second missionary journey, but the first part is just revisiting Galatia, Syria, Cilicia. Now we're in new territory here. It says uh, in verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So... As I say here, this region of Phrygia and Galatia means galactic Phrygia. Remember we said Galatians is a Roman province provincial name and uh, this is Phrygia here is more of a geographical name. So they're just saying they're traveling back through this Galatian region. Um, Paul was simply revisiting the churches that he established on his first missionary journey. Now it says that they were forbidden from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So apparently Paul was going to take the Rome, take the road here, directly uh, over to Ephesus probably, the capital of Asia, sounds like. Now he does get there, but not till the end of this missionary journey. <clears throat> but he was not permitted to go that, to that direction. Um, this is the Via Sebasti, The road that that comes through here. He's he's on a main Roman road here um, and that's the way he was probably planning to go toward Ephesus. Remember the province of Asia is this province right here. You can see the blue line comes down here. This is the province of Asia with Ephesus at the capital. Um When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. So they come over here towards Mysia, and they want to go north here to Bithynia, and they're forbidden to go there. This is a Roman province, Bithynia you can see, to the north there, the north coast. Um, So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. As I say here, this is a difficult uh, verse here to know exactly what's going on. I say, it's difficult to understand how they passed by Mysia since Troas was in Mysia. One possibility is that Luke wants to indicate that they did not stay in Mysia to evangelize. So they sort of passed by however in some contexts the verb translated pass by can mean pass through so it could be that you know it's hard to know does Luke want to indicate well they just kind of passed by in the sense they didn't evangelize exactly in Mysia here some would translate they passed through which is ultimately what they did they go through and come down to Troas here in verse 8 I say here, Troas is located about 25 miles south of ancient Troy. So, ancient Troy is more up here. This is Troas. Uh, It was established as a Greek city around 300 BC. Augustus, the Roman emperor, first Roman emperor, made it a Roman colony. Remember, we talked about these Roman colonies. It was a regular port for vessels between Asia and Macedonia. So so Asia's on this side, Europe's on this side, and over here is Macedonia, so vessels would would leave Troas, just like Paul is going to do, to go over to Macedonia. Um, now at some time, it doesn't tell us here, possibly on this missionary journey or... Maybe the third missionary journey, there is a church there. Because at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, Paul will come back through here and he stops there. And he preaches all night. You remember in that Acts chapter 20? He preaches and the guy falls out of the window, remember? And all that. So there's a church there. It just doesn't say it's established here. So we're not not sure about there. It doesn't sound like there's any establishment here. So here's Troas covering the ancient city there's not any particular excavation there here is some stones that are left there here we're, Troas we're viewing to the sea there's some remains there but not much excavation this is the bathhouse they've been able to establish that some remains here's a paved street here's a temple in the Agora you can see this kind of rectangular forum marketplace Remember, all these cities have this kind of rectangular marketplace the Agora and so forth here's a temple that had been able to establish who it was to in the Agora in the marketplace Here's what remains of the old harbor. These harbors get silted up over time, and so they create new harbors. This is just what remains of the ancient harbor there. So... uh, verse 9, during the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us so Paul's a Troas he has this vision come over to Macedonia and help us Um, as I say, Macedonia from 148 BC Macedonia and Achaia were one Roman province, in 27 BC they were split into two provinces Macedonia was a made a senatorial province by the emperor Claudius in 44. So you can see the line here. There is thrace. Paul's going to Macedonia, and then later he'll come down when he gets to Athens and Corinth, he'll he'll come down into Achaia. So Achaia down here, Macedonia. Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea are the three cities you'll see in Macedonia. So he has this vision to come over and help us. Verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. As I mentioned, verse 10, this is the beginning of the first we section. We talked about this last semester, that this is one of the arguments for Luke being the author of the book of Acts, is that there are these we sections where the where we know Luke is there, uh, Um, he's mentioned here and so apparently Paul Silas and Timothy were joined by Luke at this point I say a study of the we sections this is the first one there's three strongly suggests that Acts was written by an unnamed friend and traveling companion of Paul Luke the physician well from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight well they go to Philippi here they sailed straight to Thamothrace so they come to this little rock island right here, Thrace. As I say, this is a stopover for ships in the North Aegean. It's unclear exactly whether people went ashore or not. This is a pretty rocky thing. There's not much of a harbor here as far as you know. We know that people all, ships often would park there to get out of the wind. They would get on a certain side whichever the wind was blowing. They would, they would park their ship there and rest, stay out of the wind. Sometimes they would go ashore. So we don't know whether Paul here went ashore here uh, at this particular time. It's about halfway between Troas and Neapolis. Uh, so we're talking about 125 miles. So, you know, it's about halfway and so forth. Um, it takes them uh, just a couple of days to make it here so they have favorable winds Um, then it says uh, from there uh, and the next day we went on to Neapolis so they get to Neapolis in two days one day to Thamothrace, one day to Neapolis this is the seaport for Philippi as I say about 10 miles away so it takes two days apparently they had very favorable winds now when they come back this way when they come back this way on the third missionary journey it takes them five days takes them five days to go from Neapolis down to Troas, so obviously they were bucking winds then at that particular time. So here is Neapolis at night. There's not a lot to see in Neapolis because there's a city, Cavella, that is built on top. You know, as the the modern city's right there. So and we talked about this before. You can't, you know, cities are modern cities are built right on top. So it's hard to uh, to do much excavation. This is an aqueduct, but that wasn't built by the Romans. That was built by Suleiman the Magnificent, the famous um, six, uh, 1500s uh, Ottoman ruler. Built that aqueduct there, and uh, it says from there we traveled to Philippi. Here's the road they traveled on, the Via Ignacia. You can see how it kind of winds around here, it goes up that way. We'll see more about that in a moment. Uh, road in a moment here. Um, so they come to Philippi in verse 12. That was a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia we stayed there several days I have some notes here about Philippi in 356, Philip of Macedon the father of Alexander the Great changed the name of the original city from Crinides, which was means springs because there was a lot of natural springs around to Philippi after himself and established a large Greek colony there in 42 B.C. was the site of the victory of Mark Anthony and Octavian, later Augustus, over Brutus and Cassius, Cassius Augustus, uh, Julius Caesar's murderers. Remember, they fled Rome and they were hunted down here in Philippi. In honor of the victory, Philippi, Philippi became a Roman colony with many army veterans settling there. It was located on the Via Ignatia that ran from Dyrrachium, in the east to Byzantium, in the west, he was named for the general Ignatius, uh, Ignatius, Ignatius, proconsul of Macedonia, who ordered its construction in the second century BC. Here's another example that the Ignatia wrote here. When you read about Roman roads, uh, you can read about their construction. You can look up on the internet talks about them. They were various widths. I see widths ranging from maybe 16 foot to 32 foot. They could be narrow at some places. They could be very wide at some places, just depending. And they used had some sort of paving stone like this. Uh, so, you know, they were built for moving Roman soldiers, basically. Roman supplies and Roman soldiers. They weren't built for uh, citizens particularly to use or anything like that. So... Uh, Luke calls it a leading city. He says, we came to uh, Philippi, a leading city of that district. I say here, Luke's description of Philippi has led some to believe that this was Luke's hometown. Philippi was a wealthy city with an abundance of natural resources, including gold. They were generous in their support of the Apostle Paul. Remember Philippians chapter 4. He talks about how you were the only city when I left for Macedonia, you were the only city that supported me. So sit, here's uh, Philippi to the east of the Acropolis. Most of these cities had a mountain around them with a temple on top, an Acropolis. Here we're looking down from the Acropolis where there would have been a temple. Now here we're viewing south toward Neapolis. Port about ten miles away. Here's the plane of Brutus and Cassius's defeat. Remember, uh, the murderers of Julius Caesar.
1: Bill? Yes. Those roads there. Now, like a couple, film a couple slides. Ago. Yeah. There was a road. that was kind yeah. of One diagonal looked like a nice road. Now both. Those, those are modern roads. Modernized. right? They're not the. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Here is, uh, you kind of see that rectangular forum agora there. Here's excavations from the north. We'll see this later, the traditional prison of Paul. Remember in Acts 16, there's the forum. Some baths over there, the commercial agora. There's a picture of the, the north. Here's the bema the judgment seat where Paul would have been taken. Paul and Silas, before they were put in prison, they would have been taken to that Bema there um, in the forum. Here's some view of the forum. Remember, these forums would have been elaborate things, columns all around them, you know, in this rectangular space. There's a few of those left now. There's from the southeast. So this would have been... You know, all flat stones here, and this forum walking, you could walk there. Remains of a temple on the western end. Here's the bima. What's left of that bima there? There's raised platform. Here's the Bima from the southeast. Here's a paved street on the eastern side of the Forum. Here's the Via Ignatia. The Via Ignatia, that road we talked about that Paul traveled on, goes right through Philippi, comes right up through the city. There it is. Here's a bathhouse, a caldarium. Remember, that's the hot place where you sweat and we talked about this before, there would have been a floor along here. You have fire under here. You put water on the floor. You get steam. It rises to steam baths. So it's a steam room. Here's, uh, they use these clay pipes to water and so forth. Here's some commercial buildings from the east. So that these, these would have been extending up here with some sort of wooden roof on them. These would have been little stalls where you'd go and buy things and stuff on the forum here. Read it. Yes. What? Romans loved the bath. You couldn't be. You couldn't have. You couldn't have civilization without a bathhouse. That was just part of the Roman experience. Huh?
1: Cultural. Yeah.
0: Oh, it was just absolutely. You had to have bathhouses. They're just. They're just everywhere. They built them everywhere. You know, if you go to London, you'll go to Bath. Bath is named Bath because of the Roman bath there. Well, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. Okay. I don't know what to say, friends.
1: <laughs> Fortunate. <laughs> Fortunate. Right the I had to have. <laughs>
0: They always had theaters, remember? They always have these theaters. <laughs>
1: All right. Let's stop here for the night. Go pass. past and we'll pick it up here next week, Clark Willing.